turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, or flip on your phones or whatever means you use, to Genesis chapter 6. Now, the, the sermon portion, the, t- the portion of the text that we're covering is 6 through 819. We're not going to read all of that today. Um, I was really tempted. <laughs> but we're going to just zero in, and we're going to read a passage from Genesis 6, starting in verse 9, and then we'll switch over to Genesis 7 in a moment. All right, Genesis 6, starting in verse 9, reading through verse 18. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth... And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. Now turn to Genesis 7, please, starting in verse 17. Genesis 7, 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I probably talk about Scotland way too much. Um, But when we moved to Edinburgh first, this is about three years ago, We struggled with feeling homesick for quite a while. It was just not quite the same, right? You still spoke English, but it was funny English. You know, everything was just, they're on the wrong side of the road in their cars. Everything's a little bit off. So we didn't quite know how to alleviate that sense of homesickness, but God sent us a gift. He sent us a little Garden of Eden paradise that we could go to and feel at home. Costco. (laughs) Edinburgh has Costco. Who knew? And it turns out that no matter where you go in the world, you can get a, a soda and a hot dog for like a buck fifty at a Costco 
or one quid 50p. <laughs> so that was wonderful. We used to go to Costco and we felt homesick and you'd walk in and feel like you're in America again. And when we go to Costco, Catherine, our, our middle uh, child, would always, she still does, likes to sit in the big part of the cart where you put the groceries, you know. Uh, I don't know why, because it's got to be incredibly uncomfortable, but she wants what she wants, and that's where she wants to sit. So even, you know, Catherine will climb in the cart, and even in Edinburgh, the sort of Costco ever-vigilant attendants are there checking for that membership card when you walk in the door. Now, Catherine is seven. She does not have a membership card. <laughs> so if she tried to just go in on her own, the Costco attendants probably wouldn't let her go shop. That would be reasonable. But if she's sitting in my cart, it's very clear that this is my daughter and she's going to be let in based on my membership. Now, this part of the Bible about the flood and, and Noah's Ark, it's been turned into sort of a membership card in the evangelical church world. If you can't climb into the cart of a literal worldwide flood 4,800 years ago and a boat the size of the one in Kentucky, then you're not allowed in the club. Now, let me say this now. I do believe in a literal worldwide flood. That's not what I'm debating. What I'm debating was that this text was ever given to us to wield like a weapon to cut people out of the church. Let's not do that. So this part of the Bible, why is it here? What does it do in the story? What does it do in us when we read this story? Well, it tells us that God takes sin incredibly seriously, more seriously than we do. But even in his judgment and wrath, he still provides a way for salvation, a way that we can get into, a thing, a vehicle we can get into that will save us from the storm. So it's not about belonging to the evangelical club. It's about climbing into God's cart, so to speak, so that when cards are checked, we get into new creation. It's a very crude analogy. I know it is. We have to climb inside of God's salvation. We've got to be found in Christ. That's the location that we must be. That's what this is all about. When Jesus returns, and you can't really talk about the flood without talking about the return of Christ, because when Christ talked about his return, he talked about the flood. When Jesus returns, he will judge all of the wickedness and evil in this world. He will. The question is, would you rather be judged in the future on the basis of your own righteousness or not? Or would you rather that your judgment have been in the past based on the righteousness of Jesus. It will be one or the other. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this text under three headings. Uh, the ark is bigger than you think. The ark is safer than you think. And the price of admission is higher than you think. All right, so number one, the ark is bigger than you think. So how big was the ark? Again, we're not going to Kentucky to find out. They might be right. I don't know, because the weird thing is, the way that the Bible in the Old Testament uses numbers is sometimes incredibly precise and literal, right? And they're giving you, they want you to know exactly what a thing was like. And sometimes they're incredibly figurative. Think of the number seven, the number 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, right? the number 40, 40 days in a boat, 40 years in the wilderness, etc. Which is it here? Truthfully, I don't know. I have opinions. 
everyone's got opinions. But I don't know for certain. But I can tell you this for certain. It was huge. It was giant. The ark had room in it for Noah, for all of his family, for a lot of animals, both clean and unclean. And then piles of food to provide for all of these different kinds of animals and beasts and people for all of these days that they would be in this giant boat. So Genesis 6 tells us that it was 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. If I remember right, a cubit is roughly your arm, your forearm span, but even that's debated. Um, Three different decks for its various occupants. So think carnival cruise ship, right? Like that's, that's kind of the image. But who cares how big the ark is? Why does it matter at all? Well, let's back up for a minute and think about what the ark actually was. The emphasis, the point isn't God, God gives you a boat. The point is God's judgment is coming and he has provided a vehicle of salvation for you. That's the point. God's wrath was rightly poured out on the world. He was just and good and loving to judge because of their evil. And it took the form of this flood. So everything outside dies. Everything in the ark is saved. And there's an analog, a a fulfillment of this pattern in the New Testament. There is a safe place that we can get into. It's the only safe place to weather the storm of God's judgment. In fact, that's what baptism points to. Um, like we talked about with the kids a few minutes ago, 1 Peter 3, in one of the more confusing and alarming passages in the New Testament, if you have the time to read it, 1 Peter 3, 18, we're not afraid of the Bible. It's a great passage. There's a lot in there. But he very clearly says, hey, remember the, the time that the waters came and judged, like God judged the earth with waters? Baptism corresponds to that. Literally, he says something like, baptism is the fulfillment of this. The waters of the flood and baptism. Baptism is what the flood was designed to point to. It was not a means to an end. Otherwise, we could look at how wickedness is still on the earth when Ham gets out of the boat and sins. And we could say, God, what? it didn't work. First Peter 3 says that wasn't the point. It points to baptism. Because the, the waters of judgment are also for the ones that God saves, the waters of cleansing. That's why the Genesis 6 and 7 uses the language of blot out. That's cleaning language. Like you would blot a stain out of a carpet. In baptism, we climb into Christ's shopping cart. <laughs> no, it's terrible. We climb into Jesus himself. We get united with Christ so that when he plunges into the waters of God's judgment in death, we are unharmed. Or in another angle, we die with him. But because he lives, then we will live with him. That's why Paul says, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's talking about the union we have by climbing into Christ, going down into death and coming out the other side with a resurrected Savior. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
weird way to talk. Unless you're actually talking about in some way climbing into the body of Christ. You got to get in Christ. Here's the point. In Christ, we are safely carried through God's judgment against our sin and wickedness. Your judgment in Christ becomes a thing of the past. It already fell on him instead of you. So when Genesis 7.16 says, and the Lord shut him in, right? The image is Noah and his family and all these animals, they get in the boat and God himself shuts the door. It uses the same phrase as when God made Eve in Genesis 2. I'd never seen this before. Nathan pointed this out to me. It's actually a kind of a, it's not a unique word in Hebrew, but it's used sparsely in the book of Genesis in very key moments. God, remember when Eve was made, God puts Adam to sleep and he takes out a rib from his side and he forms that rib. He builds Eve out of a rib like a cathedral. And then he goes back to Adam and he shuts back up the place with flesh. He closes back up the wound. That's the same word as the Lord shut the door. It's almost like God is saying to Eve, his people, a judgment is coming, a flood is coming. You're gonna have to climb back into Adam to survive this. Because all of my sin, all of my judgment for your sin is gonna fall on him. You're gonna have to get back into Adam and then I'll shut you in. The only safe place to be in a flood is in the ark. And the only safe place to endure God's judgment for our sin is in our second Adam. That's it. So here's the point. I think I've said here's the point like three times. God is saving people left and right. He's doing it right now. And the judgment of God has fallen on Jesus for the sins of all those people that he saves. To weather the storm, just get in Christ. That's the place that you need to be. You might say that Jesus himself is our ark or salvation is our ark, or you might say the church is the ark. It's so much bigger than you think. Noah's ark had room for Noah, that righteous man, the one in his generation who was righteous. It had room for his wife, had room for Shem and Ham and Japheth and their wives. It had room for clean animals and unclean animals. Why is all that detail there? It repeated it over and over again. Is it to teach us, you know, how it could be after a worldwide flood that we still have squirrels and elephants? Or could it be there to teach us that when God provides salvation from his judgment, there's more room in it than we think? In John chapter four, Jesus goes to a well outside of a town called Sychar in Samaria. And he meets a woman there. She's an absolute wreck. She's a mess. She's had a bunch of husbands and lovers. She's full of shame. She's socially shunned. She's religiously ostracized. But she wanted more than anything to come alive to God. She wanted her insatiable thirst to finally be satisfied in a way that only God can actually do. And Jesus said, there's room for you. There's room for you. I will give you rivers of living water. You will never thirst again. 
Jesus taught the woman at the well that the ark of salvation was big enough for everyone. In his earthly ministry, Jesus went around all these slums and alleyways and he told the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, there's room for you. You didn't think there was, but there is. Do you think that you have disqualified yourself from salvation? Do you think you've outsinned the grace of God? Just how small do you think the ark is? It's much bigger than you think. Peter's a great example. You know, Peter, the apostle Peter was a very kind of patriotic Jewish man, um, got his sword on his hip and, and ready to do battle for Jesus and follow the laws. He even rubbed up against the apostle Paul in Galatians too by, uh, you know, falling into those old patterns. And he believed that salvation was from the Jews, which is true, and for the Jews, which is partially true. It is for the Jews. God didn't stop there though. But one day, Peter's on the roof of Simon the Tanner, this is in the book of Acts, and he, he has a vision from God. God himself shows him a sheet, as it were, let down from heaven with all kinds of reptiles and animals on it, clean and unclean. And three times God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So the natural way for us to read that is to say, cool, God's doing away with the weird dietary restrictions and laws in, you know, for his Jewish people. But what Peter immediately said is, oh, the gospel's for the Gentiles. It's for the nations. And he went and baptized Cornelius. There were the unclean peoples in their minds. And God said, I have made them clean. Do not call them common. With all kinds of these ark animals on the sheet, God taught Peter that the ark of salvation is big enough for everyone. So do you feel unclean? Have you let God down? You let yourself down. No matter how badly you've sinned, no matter what sort of mess you've made for yourself in this life, there is room for you. The ark is big enough for you and me. Praise God. In Matthew chapter nine, the religious leaders are shocked at the company that Jesus keeps. It's kind of a recurring pattern in the life of Jesus. Pardon me. Here's what he said to them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So are you unwell? You a sinner? It's a prerequisite to getting in God's vehicle of salvation. You have to be able to say, I'm at the end of myself. I got nothing left to give. I have no more righteousness to lay claim to. I'm not healthy. I need help. And then God says, I came for you. You're exactly the one that I want. There's room for you. The ark is bigger than you think. Number two, the ark is safer than you think. Look with me again in Genesis 13 through 14.
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. You notice the tone shift in those verses? It's like, I am destroying the world. Now build a boat and put some glue inside. That's on purpose. The tone shift of the story is there to contrast the destruction that was coming on the world and the absolute safety of the boat. It's watertight. You will not be bailing water out from the lower deck. There are no leaks here. The people and animals in the ark did not have to worry about God's judgment seeping in. So the waters that would drown the wicked, cleanse the land, would actually lift up the ark and it would float on the face of the waters. So once you enter the ark, you do not have to worry about the judgment waters anymore. So let's think about the New Testament again. Think about Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who we know more commonly as Paul. Um, I don't know why I referred to him as Saul. Oh, probably because I was going to talk about his conversion. Because Saul was awful, (laughs) and he thought he was great. He was unwell, but thought he was well. He didn't need the physician. So he's, he's persecuting the church, right? He's dragging professing Christians from their homes to prison and standing by approvingly as they are stoned to death. Saul is the worst. And Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and he has a conversion experience. But he didn't get immediately better. Now he did grow. He did repent. He did turn from his sin to God. That's a fundamental basic of what it means to lay hold of the mercy of Christ. You can't lay hold of Christ and also not let go of your sins. Pastor John Farmer at Emmanuel said once that Christ is so big, you have to put down everything else you're carrying to receive him. That stuck with me. But Saul says later in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, of whom I am the foremost present tense. Paul, in the light of the glory of God, didn't look down at himself and say, I was awful, but Jesus saved me and now I'm, I'm just great. Pat on the back, you know. No, he, he really did turn to Christ. He really did receive the mercy of God. His sins really were dealt with on the cross on Jesus instead of him. And he was able to look at himself then and say, I am the chief of sinners. I mean, why did Paul have to write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he still felt like he deserved condemnation. Do you? I do. We need it. We need Romans 8. It's only relevant to people like us, to people who feel like we're in danger of outsinning the grace of God, of wearing down God's pile of grace and mercy until there's nothing left. That's why we need this. So listen, you and I have all horribly betrayed Jesus after conversion, even. We've, that's why we confess our sins in every worship service at Christ Church. We should never graduate from that reality. 
but the ark is waterproof. God's judgment will not seep in to drown you secretly while you think you're safe. The love and mercy of Jesus is greater than your sins and failings. I think we say that almost every week or something like it. And I think I need to hear it and I need to hear myself say it every week. The love and mercy of God is bigger than your mess and mine. I'm so glad. This ark of salvation is not full of saints who can say, all of a sudden I got better. (laughs) It's full of people who go, oh no, I'm the chief of sinners, which makes Jesus a glorious savior. That's what John Newton said on his deathbed. The ark is so much safer than you think. Number three, lastly, the price of admission is higher than you think. So it sounds like a a pretty great boat. It's a good hang. You know, you're surviving the floodwaters, got an animal party inside, big, spacious, watertight. So what does it cost to get on board? What's the price of admission? Interestingly, if you go and read Jonah, it's kind of an upside down story of Noah's Ark. And Jonah goes and pays the wages to get on the boat. And the word is, is the wages. It's the word you would use to pay the wages of, of a prostitute. Jonah is like the inside out Noah. But what does it cost us to get on the Ark of Salvation? Can't pay our way in. On the one hand, it costs everything. And on the other hand, nothing. Because of our evil and our rebellion against God, his glory and his justice absolutely demands that he bring judgment on our sins. He would be cruel to not do it. A parent who withholds punishment and discipline from their child is not loving and kind. It's a cruelty. And a judge who withholds a sentence from a convicted murderer isn't being lenient. He's dangerous. We don't want a God who withholds judgment from evil. We do not. We need a God who must judge and will judge evil and doesn't choose between justice and mercy. We need a God who finds a way to be fully just and to justify the ungodly. That's the God we have. Because God is love, he's gonna judge all the wickedness of the world. And at the cross, that wrath and judgment of God was poured out on Jesus to all who are tucked safely away inside of him by faith. That's where the fire fell. The rest of God's judgment will be poured out on the rest of the world when Christ returns. A sobering reality. But our salvation cost Jesus everything. It was not just a physically uncomfortable death. Lots of people, saints and not, have done, you know, have died horrible deaths throughout the world. It was a cosmic death experiencing the whole wrath of God for the sins of the world in mere moments, condensed and heightened. I hope we never cheapen the death of Christ on our behalf. It cost him everything. And it's because of his righteousness that we get to climb into this salvation. Remember, we talked about this last week. There's only really two ways to get on the boat, on the ark. You got to be the one righteous man in all the world or part of his family. 
You either got to be Noah or the rest of his family. There's no third way. And since we can't be the first, since we can't be the only righteous ones left in our generation, then we're going to have to rest in the righteousness of Christ and let him adopt us into his family. So it costs Jesus everything, but it costs you nothing and everything. But I'm emphasizing the nothing thing. (laughs) Jesus paid the price of admission for you. And all you have to do is receive it. Just believe him. Stop trying to pay your way. Put your wallet away. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your good deeds to earn you salvation. So here's the danger with a sermon like this. The danger is that we minimize our sin and make God out to be someone who doesn't really care how we live once we're on board the boat. I don't think that any of us actually think that that's true. That would be very cheap grace, a very shallow salvation. It's just not how this works. We really do have to put our sins to death. We really do have to grow in holiness. We really do have to repent. It's not optional to be in the boat and love your sins. It's not optional. So here's the thing. You're never going to get traction, though, in holiness. You're never going to get traction in growth and, you know, the love of God You're never going to get unstuck from your sins without seeing the sort of largesse of God's mercy. You have to see how big the boat is, that there's room for you. And it's that that is actually transformational in our hearts, that actually gives us traction to believe it, rest in it, and surge forward in new life because of his resurrection. When you begin to grasp that even you have a place on this boat, That's the fuel that helps you start to live that upward call of Christ. When you begin to grasp how safe your salvation is, it's the catalyst to help you cherish your salvation all the more and to love your Savior more. And when you begin to grasp how much it costs Jesus to save you and how free the salvation is for you, man, you want rocket fuel for your repentance? Just stare at the mercy of God in Christ. but this isn't a repent from your sins sermon. (laughs) We have those here, but this is a settle into Christ sermon. This is a take a deep breath and get your head around the amazing mercy of God for people like us sermon. So let's ask God to help us do that now in prayer before we go to communion. Lord, I'm just struck by the... The the phrase, even me. Would you help us all to move past me and get to even me? You would save even me, Lord. So would you help us see our sin more seriously like you do? To see our sins as worthy of the flood of your judgment. Lord, Paul said that our sins were nailed to the cross. Help us to believe that and to tremble. 
And then would you pour out your spirit on us so that Christ is just magnified in our hearts. So the mercy of God becomes our bread, our oxygen. Would you do it for the sake of Christ? Amen. Amen.